If you are visiting with us or this is your first time, um, just so you know, we, what we do is we, we kind of go through books of the Bible at a time and we're um, in the middle of a series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we've we've kind of broken the whole book of 1 Corinthians into five parts, the first part being the imperfect church. And today is our last section or our last Sunday in that section, the imperfect church. And so the idea of this imperfect church is really that we don't just see Corinthians, the ancient church of Corinth, as, as imperfect, but that we recognize that we are an imperfect church, that there's no such thing as, uh, thank you, there's no such thing as a perfect church. Um, and even though we are completely imperfect, we are deeply loved by Jesus who is perfect. Amen? So we don't have to be perfect because Jesus is perfect. So we're finishing up this section this morning, and last week uh, we saw that Paul was uh, really encouraging the, the Corinthians to evaluate themselves and evaluate each other, to evaluate their leaders in, in, in light of the good news of Jesus. Uh, and when we do that, what we saw was that we, it leads us to live in lives that are shaped by the cross of Jesus, what we call cruciform lives. And in today's passage, Paul, he's about to transition into addressing some um, relational problems, right? So the church was a bit messed up. There were some relationship issues. If you come back next week, you're going to hear about a guy who was sleeping with his stepmom in the church, and uh, he addresses that. Before he gets into those relational issues, he wants to give them one more lesson, and he gives them this a lesson on authority. So I, I wonder, when I started to consider authority, I, I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear the word authority. Because chances are, it's probably not a good word for you, right? Most of us, when we hear of authority, we think of something negative. And I'm guessing if you went out in the street and asked people if you, what comes to your mind when you think of authority, you might think of like an angry headmaster or a really strict parent or, I don't know, like a prison guard or something like that. Um, I don't know why prison guard came into my head, but there you go. Um, but people kind of shudder at the thought of authority, don't they? Right? So you go, well, what, what gives you the right to tell me uh, how I should live my life? Like, uh, how, how dare you tell me how I should behave? We don't like authority. And that's why when we read a passage like, we, like Caitlin just read for us, we can be really, get really uncomfortable uh, with the way that Paul is talking because he's, he's, he's speaking in a really authoritative way. Firstly, he claims a, a really special position in the lives of the Corinthians. He, he says, uh, he, he claims to be their father. He says, I'm your father. And he's urging them to imitate him. And he's warning them that if they don't, he's going to come and discipline them with a rod. That's, you know, that's pretty stern. But before we get into it, we just need to be careful that we don't see this just through our modern, Western, anti-authority mindset. Because for the Corinthians, 2,000 years ago, this book was written about AD 52, something like that. So 2,000 years ago nearly, uh, in the ancient Near East, the understanding of authority was very, very different than it was to ours. So this a metaphor of, of like a father or son and imitation would be very familiar to them. It doesn't really make sense for us, but it, but it made sense for them. So we have a bit of work to do to understand what's going on. But before we understand what authority is and what Paul means here, I want to think for a second about what authority isn't, okay? We need to be careful not to mistake authority for author authoritarianism. Big word, authoritarianism. I'll explain them both. Authority is the ability to influence others, right? 
It's the right to give others orders and make commands for their good. That's what authority is. Authoritarianism is enforcing strict obedience to authority, right? So you're taking that authority that's been given to you, and instead of using it for people's good, you're actually abusing their freedom for your own good, okay? So it's showing a lack of concern for others. It's showing, it's domineering. It's like a dictator. And, you know, we've seen this thing, this kind of thing right throughout history, haven't we? Dictators pop up every now and again, tyrants. So there's a big difference between authority and authoritarianism. One is good and one is bad. But the problem is for us, when we read a, a passage like this, when Paul's saying, oh, well, you guys, what do you want? Should I come to you with a rod? We take all those uneasy feelings about authoritarianism and we impose them on authority. And this affects how we read the Bible, right? Because if we read the Bible incorrectly, if we read the Bible uh, as an authoritarian, dictatorish, is that a word, document, then we'll, we're going to resist it, aren't we? We'll have that, how dare you tell me how to live? Because we view it as being against us. But if we read the Bible correctly as an authoritative document, then we'll delight in it because we'll know that it's actually God speaking to us for our flourishing. And this is, this is true of our passage today. So you can either hear Paul wrongly, like as a dictator, or you can hear him rightly. You can hear him as a, a God-given authority figure for this church. He's given, God, is, is God has given Paul to this church to show them a certain way that leads to their flourishing and to their joy, leads to their salvation. But it's also important for us to understand not just what authority is not, but, but also understand that authority is necessary, right? If you think about it, it is really. So uh, one commentator I was reading on 1 Corinthians, uh, he says this. He says, the more free we become and the more gifted we become as individuals, the more we will need thoughtful and careful authority to help us flourish. So the more free we become, the more gifted we become as individuals, the more we need thoughtful and careful authority to help us flourish. This is how God designed us to be, right? We're designed to operate and flourish under authority, good and careful and loving authority. So, and we see, you can, I'll give you an example. Think of, think of how a really good football team uh, operates. So don't think of Linfield, uh, just saying for Josh, don't think of Linfield. Uh, don't think of Man United either. Think of a really good football team. You can have 11 of the best footballers in the world. You can put them on the pitch together to play any other team. And without the right authority structures in place, they're going to fail, right? If everyone's just playing to their own game plan, if everyone's not obeying the rules of the, the game, it's going to be a disaster. But if they submit to the good authority of a gifted coach, they, they can achieve greatness. All the best football teams in the world have a great coach behind them. You can think of the same as, uh, another example could be like an orchestra. If all the musicians in an orchestra are just playing whatever they want to play, that, then it's going to be a disaster. But if they all follow the conductor's leading and play in the same time signature and play off the same uh, sheet, then it's going to sound beautiful. Authority, good authority is a good thing. Authority is necessary. And this is what's happening in Corinth. Paul, Paul sees the Corinthians and they're all trying to play their own game. They're a mess. And he, he's, he's calling them to, to, to get their vision back to where it belongs. He's using his authority that's been given to him by God 
to bring them back into flourishing, bring them back into good relationship with one another and good relationship with God. Because being under good and caring authority is how God designed us to flourish. Like, just think what it would be like if there was no authority in the, in the world. It would just be chaos. And this is, this is how a family operates as well. Okay? So, if, 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 say, my children don't have any authority over them, like, if, if, I, if me or Haley can't exercise authority over them, they wouldn't survive, never mind be well-behaved. They wouldn't flourish at all. They need someone with influence over them who uses their influence in the right way to nurture them and to shape them and to encourage them and to love them and to correct them. And, and it, I'm sure we all know, like, hands-off, you know, parents, uh, kids who have grown up with hands-off parents, like, they're Usually, they, they, they struggle with authority in their lives. They struggle with relationship and with boundaries. But not only is authority necessary, authority is inevitable. And what I mean by that is, like, we're always under some kind of authority, right? There's no such thing as a, an authority vacuum. So, you, you either have good authority in your life or you have bad authority in your life. Every human being, whether you're religious, whether you're Christian, whether you're skeptic, whether you're agnostic, whatever, ultimately everyone believes in some kind of authority structure. You can't believe in a non-authority. So even if, you, even, if, even if you're an anarchist, you do believe in some kind of authority. It's just an authority that comes within to, to throw off the law or whatever. So the question is, if, if authority is necessary and authority is inevitable, the question is, what authority are we submitting to? Okay? What authority are we submitting to? So maybe it is this kind of internal guidance thing. And Paul says that. We saw last week in verse 6, he calls that being puffed up arrogance, right? It seems to be what the Corinthians were doing. They, they, were just, they were just going by their own internal. Everyone was playing their own game. Everyone was going by their own internal authority. And they were all making themselves God, and the church was being divided because of it. But the other option is that we can humble ourselves, that we can remember, like we saw last week, that we are recipients of grace, that Jesus loves us, and that we need him, and submit to his authority because he only has our good interests at heart. He wants us to flourish. He wants us to have eternal life. And this is what Paul is trying to do for this church. He's writing to them. He's urging them to be unified. He's, he's urging them to grow up in maturity, to stop fighting over who's the better leader. The church is breaking apart. And so in that moment, they need Paul to be an authority figure, to bring them back, to restore them. And, and he's saying some difficult things, isn't he, right? And he's being quite stern. There's talk of coming with a rod and all that kind of stuff. And even last week, he used a little bit of sarcasm to get their attention. And here... He employs this new metaphor for them. He refers to his relationship to them as that of a father with his children. Okay? And the point, it's really important to grasp that. When he's writing to them in this letter, he's writing to them as this father figure to them. And we'll come back and explain that in a minute. And the whole thrust of his argument today depends on, on this idea that he is a, a personal, loving father to these people. He's a father figure. And, and, and as we're going to see, that, that father-child father relationship is all based on and experienced in and created by the gospel, the good news of Jesus. 
And so it's in that context of a loving father that he expresses his authority. So even though he's stern with them, he's not a dictator. He comes to them with love. He comes to them the way Jesus comes to us. He says in verse 14, he addresses them as my beloved, my beloved children. Right? So this just reveals that his warm, affectionate concern for them. Even though they, they really do need, you know, a boot up the rear end, he comes to them, he's like, my beloved children, what are you doing? He comes out of love. Even though, even though they had been uh, second-guessing him and they had been slandering him and saying all this stuff against him, he doesn't retaliate in the same way. He comes, out, he comes to them in love. He says in verse 14 that his purpose is to admonish them and not make them ashamed. So this word admonish just means that he's warning them. He's instructing them. He, he's, he's helping to shape them. He doesn't just come and tell them off and then leave them to it. That's not what good parents do, is it? Right? You know, if, 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 you know, if my kids are making a mess and, and I don't just come in and tell them off, no. I want to show them how to tidy up. I say, look, you've made a mess, but let me show you how to tidy up. That's what good parents do. Because obviously I'm an amazing parent. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> the key thing to remember here is that Paul is... Paul is motivated by love. And what's on display here is this uh, authority that comes in the shape of a loving father figure. So there's three things I want us to see um, uh, that, that we can learn about Paul's love. We can learn from Paul's loving authority. The first one is that love warns. Love warns. Have a look at verses 14 and 15 with me. Just keep your Bible open. Uh, we're just going to dip in now as we always do. Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you, to, to, to nurture you, to warn you, to, to shape you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, one thing we have to address is that in Matthew 23, Jesus says, call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. So there's definitely problems from Jesus with, with gospel ministers being called father. You guys should not call me father. And, and Paul knows that. He's not saying, call me father, right? He's not, he doesn't want them to start you know, going around saying, you know, father Paul. But what he's doing is he's using a metaphor to help them understand the special relationship that he has with them, right? To this specific group of Christians. So think about it. Paul was the one who went to Corinth and he planted the church. He was the, first, he was the first person who shared the gospel with them. He was the one who led them to meet Jesus. So it's like he's in the delivery room while they're being born into the family of God. That's, that's what he's saying here. He's like, I, I've known you since you, you entered this family. And this is, it's just a metaphor that he's using. He became their spiritual father in this way. He's this connection with them that no one else does. And we know that he's not slagging off the other teachers that are mentioned. He's not doing any of that kind of stuff. He's just saying, but trust this relationship I have from you. I've known you since you were babies. I know you inside out. And actually, what this, what this imperfect church needs right now is a spiritual father to come and correct their mistakes. Because they're rebelling. Pride has crept in. It's causing divisions. And they need their spiritual dad, don't they? They need Paul to come and set things straight to, to get them back on the right track. One of our core values as a church, you'll know this by now, hopefully if you're new you won't, but is 
church's family. So we seek to have a culture in village of church as family, right? And it's this kind of language in the Bible that supports this core value. That the church isn't just an organization. That that we need spiritual mothers. We need spiritual fathers who love and care for us as their children, right? In a way that no one else does. Good parents want their children to learn and grow. They don't want their kids to remain immature and and know nothing and and, and be underdeveloped. Good parents want their kids to grow. And so in that, they admonish, they warn and correct. They teach them the right way rather than make them feel bad for their improper behavior. See, good parents, and what we seek to have a culture of in this church is good spiritual parents who aren't there to shame, but to build up, to encourage And Paul makes this little distinction here in verse 15. He says, he says that for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. The word countless there is like 10,000. You have 10,000. He's making an exaggeration. And this word guide here is this, uh, the, the, the word guide, it's more like a guardian. It's not like the way we think of a tour guide or, or something like that. Uh, the, the word is a pedagogue. You might have heard of that, but they were basically a paid slave in the culture, who was responsible, uh, they were put in charge of, they were trusted with the welfare of the kid. So the child was to, um, the pedagogue, the guide, the guardian, was to take the kid to school, was to watch over them while they were playing, um, was to kind of be like a superintendent kind of thing, just make sure they were safe. But this guy, this, this guardian, they, they're not the child's father. They're not the parent. They don't have the same relationship as the parent has with the child. The, the, the guardian was there to kind of help raise them, but they didn't have the same interest in the child that the father or the mother does. And Paul said, listen, you guys have lots of these people all around. You have Apollos. You have Peter. There's lots of these people around. But I have a special vested interest in you because you're like my children. I'm like your father. I want to warn you and teach you. And Paul's just, he's both asserting his authority and appealing to that relationship for the sake that they would heed his warnings, that they'd remember the gospel and be united. And so listen, if you're still a bit uneasy about Paul taking this authority stance, you can just read on, read those few verses and you can see that Paul is not a crushing authoritarian figure, right? His concern right from the beginning and right to the end is the good news of Jesus. Listen, he says, he says in verse 15, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel He has fathered them so they might be in Christ Jesus. In verse 16, he sent Timothy, or he is sending Timothy. Uh, There's a little side note. It says sent, but some people think it means is sending. People aren't sure if Timothy got there before the letter or after the letter. Anyway, that's why it says sent, and some people say is sending, just so you know. Um, He says he sent Timothy, who who is his son in the Lord, so that they might learn to walk in Christ Jesus. See, the point of everything for Paul is always, he only ever has one point. Paul only ever has one point. And this is it. The gospel of Jesus is everything. That's his one point. And so he's able to come to to the Corinthians, this family that he loves so much, these people that he's seen come into the faith, come into the family, and he's raising them, and he's able to warn them out of love. 
Not so that he can have power over them, but so that they can flourish in Christ through the gospel. So love warns. But the second thing that we see then is that love exhorts. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. I urge you then, or I invite you, I call you is really what he's saying. Then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as, uh, as I teach them everywhere in the church, in every church. Sorry, I apparently can't read all of a sudden. So Paul, he doesn't just want to warn them. He doesn't want to just instruct them. He just doesn't want to point out where they're going wrong. He doesn't want to just say, hey, you've forgotten that you're recipients of God's grace and then leave them to it. Stop there. He does warn them with his words, but then as every loving parent should do, he urges them to follow his example, to imitate him. He practices what he preaches. He, he, it's almost like by his actions, he gives credence or validity to his commands, right? So, and this is, this is good because what we do always speaks louder than what we say. Isn't that true? Like, what we do always means way more than what we say. This is a picture of a father who's instructed his children in, popular, in, in proper behavior by his example. So he's saying, like father, like son. That's what he's saying. Come on, guys, like, follow me. Like, be imitators of me. And, and in the culture back then, this would have been really well understood, this idea of being an imitator of your parents. So if your, father was a, if your father was a fisherman, then he'd train you up, he'd take you out in the boat, and you'd become a fisherman. If your, if your father was a, a carpenter, just like we saw with, with the Lord Jesus, right? His father, his earthly father was Joseph, he was a carpenter. And what did Joseph do? Joseph trained the Lord Jesus up to be a carpenter. You'd be with him in his workshop, you'd be studying how he does things, you'd learn how to measure and Measure twice and cut once. My dad always told me that. Measure things. You'd learn how to cut the wood. You'd learn how to sand. You'd observe him so that you can replicate that. So that you could learn how to learn the ways of a carpenter. And in the same way, Paul is urging the Corinthians to, to follow in his footsteps. He's saying, look to me to, to see what it looks like to follow the Lord Jesus. And he's not saying... Guys, look at me, I'm awesome. You know, you should just do what I do. That's not what he's saying at all. Even, even later on, we'll see in chapter 11, in verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's all about becoming more like Christ. And Paul, you know, he, he actually, he has shown them what it looks like to follow Jesus. We saw this in the last section. He, Paul the Apostle, following in Christ's footsteps, what, what happened to him? He says, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Paul lives this upside down nature of the kingdom. He's, he's not about getting to the top. He's not about being honored. He's not about being wise. He's, he's not about being respected. He's about being brought low. He's about laboring and serving. Chapter 2, he said, I didn't come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and trembling. 
And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul's able to say to his children, be imitators of me because he's imitating Christ. And we're called to humility instead of arrogance. We're called to embrace weakness instead of appearing strong. We're called to be lowly servants at the bottom rather than be honorable and wise at the top. And he says the same about, about Timothy. He says, Timothy, Timothy is my faithful child. And the Corinthians so far were being unfaithful children. They were still his children, but Timothy's the guy, he's like, no, he's a faithful child. They're exactly the same. They're both beloved children to Paul. But Timothy has followed that example. Timothy's been with him for years, following him around, observing him like a dad in the carpenter's workshop, or like a son in the dad's workshop. And he sends Paul. And the reason he sends Paul is, well, he can't get there just yet. But, he said, but because Paul is able to testify that Paul's cross-shaped life, what he actually lives, and his message, what comes out of his words, are exactly the same. There's integrity there. Paul, Timothy, go down to Corinth and remind them Go and show them how real this stuff is. They could see, and, and when he went there, they could see that in the life of Paul and the life of Timothy. At this point, Timothy has been with Paul on his journeys, and he'd witnessed the, the founding of most of the New Testament churches, right? He saw firsthand what Paul has sent over the past four chapters as, as real. Timothy was in this unique position of being able to vouch for Paul's cross-shaped lifestyle. He was this faithful child in the Lord. Paul, Timothy walked and served alongside Paul. He imitated Paul as Paul imitated Christ, and it resulted in faithfulness. So the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is this. Who are we imitating? Who are you imitating? Who are you learning from? Are you learning from someone who grasps the, the good news of Jesus as central to life, right? Do you have someone who's lovingly warning you and guiding you and exhorting you to live in the way of Jesus? Is there someone in your life that you're imitating that will happily say to you, I think you've got it wrong here? Do you, do you have that kind of relationship with someone? Is there someone in your life who says, you are my, you are my daughter, you are my son? Do you, who are your spiritual moms and dads? Who, who, you, who is exemplifying for you what it looks like to follow Jesus? No one's perfect, right? You're not going to find someone perfect. You're certainly not going to find that in village. Trust me. And Paul didn't consider himself perfect. He, he actually said he was the worst of sinners. But he understood the grace and mercy of God. And his whole life was centered around the gospel. And we need spiritual parents who are exercising that, that same kind of, 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 of spiritual authority, teaching us, showing us the way of Christ. And what he's talking about here is whole life discipleship. Imitating our spiritual mothers and fathers, that doesn't come from meeting up once a week for a coffee. Because if I, only, you know, if I, if I meet uh, someone I'm imitating for once a week for a coffee, I can easily say, oh, yeah, everything's fine. What are you struggling with? Ah, oh, you know, I've been working too hard. You know, they don't know what's going on in my life. I don't see what's going on in their life. And those things are good. Meeting up for, for coffee is good. But how can you imitate someone that, you've never, that you never see? And this is why we practice missional community in the way we do, right? 
so that we can be part of each other's lives, so that we can see each other handling the day-to-day stuff, so, so, that, so that we can imitate one another, so that you guys can see what I'm like as a husband and as a father, so you can see how we handle our money, so you can see, see, see what my temper's like when I'm at home. You know how Paul discipled Timothy? He took him with him. They were in each other's lives for years. Being in each other's lives is the best way to be discipled and to disciple. And we've somehow managed to want the quick fix, haven't we? I just want the we are long chat every now and again. Make sure, yeah, yeah, well, he seems to be doing well. We're talking about shared lives. Discipleship is this lifelong process of relationship and observation and imitation. That's what we see. You never see one-to-one discipleship in the Bible, in all the New Testament. You never see it. You see lives shared. You see imitation. And, and even as we train leaders in the village, right, we, have a, we have a leadership development group, okay? And what that's about is not developing the perfect leaders. It's not about developing the perfect people. It's not even about gifting people all these methods to be leaders. What that's about is to develop people and encourage people so that we can point to them and say, if you want to know how to follow Jesus, follow them. That's what we want our leaders to be. See how they follow Jesus. Imitate them. Trust your missional community leaders. Find the right moms and dads. Be like them as they seek to follow Jesus. And one final word in this before we move on to our last point. There's another question we need to ask ourselves in this. Not only are we imitating other people, you need to ask yourself, who is imitating me? Right? No matter if you're very young, no matter if you're very old, you need to be clear on this. There are people who are looking to you as an example of how to follow Jesus. And that's not meant to scare you. That's that's meant to motivate you to be more like Jesus because the only way you're going to be able to lead other people to follow Jesus is if you're following Jesus. And this is natural in the family, isn't it, right? So kids imitate their parents, but the younger kids imitate the older kids. I, I mean, I've even seen this, and you know, we only have two kids and we're both very young, but you see this, like Abby does everything that Finley does, just naturally. And it's natural that we imitate our older brothers and sisters as they imitate the parents. And together, as a church family, we all strive to imitate Christ. Does that make sense? Everyone tracking this okay? Love exhorts us to not just have the right belief, but to imitate Christ. And as we do so, we become more like him. So love warns. But also, our last point then, love rebukes. Have a look at verse, uh, verses 18 to 21. I can find it. Paul says, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. So what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Paul is their spiritual dad, and he loves and cares for them. But what do you do with that stubborn kid who hears the warnings but just won't obey? Well, a good parent in times like that has to be tough, right? 
When I, was a, when I was a kid, there were six words that my mom could say to me that just brought dread into my life more than any other words. Wait until your dad gets home. Those are the words. Then you're like, oh, right, I've really crossed the line. I've done something bad. Yeah. Oh, that happened when I broke my sister's arm. So uh, true story. You can ask her about it someday. Well, you can ask me about it. But uh, yes, broke her arm. Wait till your dad gets home. <laughs> And when I heard those words, I knew I was in trouble. But sometimes good parents have to be strict, have to be stern, have to lay down the law. And, and I, right, listen, I, I tell Finley all the time, for example, you have to be careful of tr- cars in the road, especially if you're on the side of a busy road. And, and why I tell him that is because he's a child, he's small, cars are big, and if he gets hit, chances are he's going to die. So I do my best to impart wisdom to him. I urge him. I'm like, son, you have to stay away from the road. You can't ride on the road. Like, look look at me. Imitate me. I'm going to stop at the side of the road. I'm going to watch for cars. I'm going to be calm. And when it's safe, I'm going to cross, right? So what do I do then if I see Finley running out onto the street? Well, I say, well, I've, I've told him everything he needs to know. He's seen me do it. So it's up to him if he runs out on the road. No, that would be the, I'd be the worst parent ever, right? I shout at him, I, I like chase after him, I grab him, and, and when I've got him out of the road, I, I probably even, I, I probably even am cross with him. I want to be cross with him, to know how serious it is, what he has done, to, for him to never do that again. Why? Because I love him, and I don't want him to get hit by a car. See, love rebukes when it sees a child in anger, and so Paul is this loving father, and, and he wants to both rebuke and threaten discipline to these Christians because they're ignoring his warnings and it's going to lead to their own destruction. In in verse 18, we see Paul zeroing in in this group here causing division. So you remember all through the last three chapters, there's been someone who's saying, well, I'm with Apollos and and I'm with Paul and I'm with Peter and I'm with Jesus. And they're causing all this division in the church. And here Paul says, I know know who it is. This is the daddy's coming home moment, right? This is it. He, He says, some of you are, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. He's like, just you wait. He's like, I know who you are. And they had probably decided, well, we don't need a visit from Paul. Uh, you know, we, we have our own ideas. We don't need a dad anymore. And Paul says, well, listen, unless God stops me, I'm going to come to you soon. This is the wait until dad gets home. And he says here, He's going to find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Remember, these Christians, they they bought into the culture of the Corinthians, right? Of of Corinth, right? The ancient Corinth culture was all about getting a name for yourself, all about getting power, all about getting wisdom. There's a lot of talk about power in Corinth. But Paul's not concerned about the mere talk of power. He's concerned with the reality of it. He says in verse 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. The Corinthians were concerned with power and the kingdom of God is all about power, but it's about God's power, not man's. The kingdom of God is about the power of God working in and through the weak, through the poor, through the lowly, through the despised. And Paul's saying, listen, words are cheap and some of you are talking about power, but it's not demonstrated at all in your lives. Where was the power of God to be seen working among them? Paul says in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, I didn't come to you with plausible words of wisdom. I came to you in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. 
so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So what is this demonstration of the spirit and of power? Do you know what that is? It's Christ crucified. I desire to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. That's the power of God. That's the gospel. And how does Paul deliver that message? How does he deliver this demonstration of power? He just came in weakness. He came in in fear and trembling. For Paul, the, the power of God is demonstrated. It's revealed in him. The gospel is revealed in him being cursed and being slandered and yet continuing to pursue following Jesus day by day. It's the power of God at work in his life. Not Paul's greatness, but God's work in, in just lowly old Paul's life. You see, the power of God isn't seen in this church being amazing. That, that's never what it's about. We're never, the, the power of God won't be seen in us being super spiritual. The power of God won't be seen in us being well put together. The power of God won't be seen in having this room filled with twice as many people. That's not, that's not how the power of God is revealed. That's not how the kingdom of God works. The power of God is seen in the way he preserves frail gospel workers. That's you and me and weak Christian believers. How many of you feel like a weak Christian believer? I know I do. And it's through our witness to the faithfulness of Christ that he brings others into eternal life. Don't ever think that you have to have it all together or or don't ever think that our church has to be amazing before your friends and neighbors are going to see the power of God. They're going to see the power of God primarily through how you deal with suffering, through how you deal with being reviled, through how you deal with the hardship of following Jesus and keep on praising him and keep on following him. Another commentator in this, David Jackman, he says, the lifestyle of the Christian messenger proves or disproves the reality of the Christian message. The lifestyle, our lifestyle of what we're saying actually proves if it's true or not. And this is why he's so upset with them. He's saying, you've got it all wrong. You're talking about wisdom. You're talking about power. You're all talk is what he's saying. You're all talk. And he says, listen, I love you. And if this continues, I'm going to rebuke you. I'm going to come with discipline. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Paul could come home, come home. Paul could come to them prepared to like whip them into shape. Or he could come as he would prefer to do as their loving, gentle, spiritual father in love and gentleness. I'm sure we've all experienced that. I remember like, you know, dad, days my dad would get home from work and it would be that with your dad gets home, right? And we'd all be really worried about, usually during the summer when we were all bored and you'd be really worried. But then there's other days when your, my dad would get home from work and it would be hugs, it'd be kisses, it'd be playing. That's how, that's, how, that's how Paul wants to come to them and that's how Jesus wants to come to us. And Paul says, when I return... How I return is going to depend on how you respond to what I'm telling you right now. His challenge is that they should take up their cross and become faithful stewards of the gospel, living this cruciform life 
until the Lord comes to, to bring that commendation, to bring that reward. And we decide whether he comes to us as judge or whether he comes to us in love and a spirit of gentleness. Now listen, I want to finish with this because we need to, I, I've spoke, spoken a lot about authority. And maybe the last thing you want to hear right now is the thought of, of discipline. Maybe you're feeling weak. Maybe you're feeling like that weak Christian. Maybe you're feeling that your faith isn't very strong. Maybe you know that you've sinned a lot this week. And this week, I was sharing with the guys yesterday, I was just really aware of my own frailty and my own imperfection and my own weak faith, my own sinfulness. And I know that a lot of us in the church feel this way. And when you feel that way, the last, one you, the last, thing, you want to, the last thing you want is like, you know, thinking about Jesus coming at you with a big stick to say, I'm, I'm coming at you with a rod. But far greater than the loving and gentle authority of Paul is the loving fatherhood of God. Paul is this amazing example of loving, gentle fatherhood. But our Father, our Heavenly Father, is infinitely more loving and infinitely more gentle. So please hear me this morning. If there are things in your life that need corrected, God isn't coming at you to beat you up. He's coming at you to admonish you, to warn you, to encourage you, to, to build you up, to say, come into this way of life. It's for your flourishing. And I want to finish by reading a section from a book because um, this guy is a far better preacher than I ever will be. And his name is Richard Sibbs, and he was a, a Puritan preacher way back in the 1600s. Um, and he really specialized in preaching to what he called weak Christians. And that was just people who were feeling like many of us do, like our faith isn't good enough, like our performance isn't good enough, that we sin too much, that we don't understand the gospel enough, that we don't receive God's grace enough, we don't understand it. So if you're feeling weak or you're feeling tired, if you're aware of your own sinfulness, if you feel like your faith is hanging on by a thread, then this is for you. Listen to how G listen to, to Jesus' posture toward you this morning. Listen to how he disciplines us. Consider the comfortable relationships Christ has taken upon himself of husband, shepherd, and brother, which he will discharge to the utmost. Consider the names he has borrowed from the mildest creatures such as lamb and hen to show his tender care. Consider his very name Jesus, a savior given him by God himself. Consider his office answerable to his name, which is that he should bind up the brokenhearted. At his baptism, the Holy Ghost rested on him like the shape of a dove to show that he should be a dove-like, gentle mediator. See the gracious way he executes his office. As a prophet, he came with blessing in his mouth. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And invited those to come to him whose heart suggested most Exceptions against themselves. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. How did his heart yearn when he saw the people as a sheep having no shepherd? He never turned any back again that came to him. He came to die as a priest for his enemies. He shed tears for those that shed his blood. And now he makes intercession in heaven for weak Christians, standing between them and God's anger. He is a meek king. And he will admit mourners into his presence, a king of poor and afflicted persons. And he has beams of majesty, 
So he has a heart of mercy and compassion. He is the prince of peace. Why was he tempted? Except that he might succor them that are tempted. He is a physician good at all diseases, listen to this, especially at the binding up of a broken heart. He died that he might heal our souls with a plaster of his own blood and by that death save us. What should we learn from this but to come boldly to the throne of grace in all our grievances? Shall our sins discourage us when he appears there only for sinners? Are you bruised? Be of good comfort. He calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him and take not Satan's counsel. Go to Christ. Although trembling as the poor woman who said, if I may but touch his garment, we shall be healed and have a gracious answer. Go boldly to God in our flesh. He is flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone for this reason, that we might go boldly to him. Never fear to go to God, since we have such a mediator with him who is not only our friend, but our brother and our husband. Well might the angel proclaim from heaven, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Well, might the apostle stir us up to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Peace and joy are to me and fruits of Christ's kingdom. Let the world be as it will. If we cannot rejoice in the world, yet we may rejoice in the Lord. His presence makes any condition comfortable. Be not afraid, he says to his disciples. It is I. As if there were no cause for fear when he was present. Let this support us when we feel ourselves bruised. Christ's way is first to wound and then to heal. No sound whole soul shall ever enter into heaven. Think when in temptation, think of this this week, when you're being tempted. Christ was tempted for me according to my trials will be my graces and comforts. If Christ be so merciful as not to break me, I will not break myself by despair nor yield myself over to the roaring lion Satan to break me into pieces. And here's the final sentence. He binds up the brokenhearted as a mother is tenderest to the most diseased and weakest child. So does Christ most mercifully incline to the weakest. I don't know how you feel. I feel if... Maybe you feel bruised. Maybe you feel weak. Are you feeling weak? Are you feeling tired? Jesus loves you. And he wants to exhort you. He wants to encourage you. He doesn't come with the big stick to beat you into submission. He comes in love and gentleness and an invitation to a joyful way of living. And in response, our response needs to be, and let's do this, church. Let's humble ourselves. Let's remember that we are just recipients of God's grace, that grace upon grace upon grace. And let's pray for more, spirit, more Christ-like spiritual moms and dads so that we can imitate them, so that we can imitate Jesus. And let's submit to the good and caring authority of Jesus that he has over our lives so that we can live that cruciform life for the sake of his kingdom and for, and for our joy and for our flourishing. Let me pray for us.